But it is good to be here this morning, an opportunity to uh, praise and to worship together and to focus in on the Word. And with that, let's just open up in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your kindness in our lives, that you have set your loving kindness on us. We thank you that we have this opportunity to gather to worship and to gather around your Word. Father, many of us have worries, concerns, Um, We have things in our day-to-day life that sometimes can crowd out the things that are important, whether it's home life or business or or neighbors or or just the general uh, situation in the politics around the world. But this morning as we come before you, we ask that we will be able to um, focus on your word and what you have for us this morning and that those thoughts will not invade and that you allow us to center in on your word. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to come together in Christ's name. Amen. So as we talked about last week, we're going to begin a new series. So we're going to begin to speak about kingdom living. One of the first parts about kingdom living, when you turn to those chapters in Matthew, which we call Sermon of the Mount, we see what we call the beginning of that Sermon of the Mount. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 this morning. We're not going to go very far into it. Um, years ago, yeah, if you're much into uh, older translations, you may be familiar with the Vulgate. It's a Latin translation. Now, the Vulgate was commissioned by Pope Damascus the first in 382. In charge of that translation was a priest by the name of Jerome. Jerome was not only a priest in the church, but he was also the secretary to Damascus. He was also the primary person responsible for the translation work. Now, of the Vulgate, the oldest complete copy that we have comes from the 8th century, while there's also a nearly complete surviving New Testament Vulgate from 547. Now, textual criticism is a a fascinating science, and that science ensures that the Bibles that you and I have, that we read from, are as accurate as possible. In the Vulgate, in Matthew chapter 5, our text, main text for this morning, it begins with the Latin word beati, B-E-A-T-I. And translated into English, that word means blessed. It's from the Latin word, la beati, that we derive the word beatitude. In the Cambridge Dictionary, they define a beatitude as complete happiness that comes from being blessed by God. In Matthew, there are eight beatitudes, eight pronouncements or declarations of the Lord Jesus as how to bring true happiness to a person or how they that might be blessed. If you were with us last Sunday evening, we looked at Ephesians chapter 4. We looked at verses 1 through 3. Let me read that for you this morning as we begin. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. So notice, if we want to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, or as the New Living says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together in peace, 
if we want to do this, there are five steps. And with each step, there's an increase in intensity. With success in the first step, it, it makes it easier and it's the underpinning for, for the next step. So once we accomplish one, it makes it a little easier to accomplish the other. So let's look at them quickly. And it all starts with humility. Being others-centered, putting others first, looking out for the best interest of those around us. That begins by first understanding who God is and then who we are. And once we see ourselves in light of standing before who God is and how God deals with us, we begin to be humble. And as humility evades our life, then the next step is much easier, and that is that of being gentle with one another. And as we begin to be gentle with one another, that leads into being patient, to be forbearing with one another. Forbearance is another term. And the fourth step is that we can learn to endure with one another. No, that sounds terrible, but that's what it means, to endure, to put up with one another. And we can do this because we love one another. So there's steps. There's an intensity there. The Beatitudes are progressive too. And I want you to watch that as we move through the next couple of weeks. You have to start with the first Beatitude before you can begin to change or to look at the next Beatitude. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So as soon as Jesus headed up the mountainside or the hillside, and he sat down, the disciples immediately recognized, oh, wait a second, He's sitting down. That means he's, he's getting ready to teach. And they gathered around him. And the crowds gathered around him too, recognizing that he was about to begin to teach. And as everyone assembled, he began to systematically teach them. That's literally what the verse is telling us. That last word, saying, means discoursing or planning systematic teaching. So this teaching was not haphazard by any manner. It was planned what he was going to say, and it was teaching that we would call systematic. So let's begin to pull apart this last verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does the word blessed mean? Well, in the Phillips translation renders the verse this way. How happy are the humble-minded? Happy not due to circumstances, but it's the concept of the fills the soul with joy, even in hard times. It denotes the concept of receiving God's favor, a deep joy, usually from divine favor. Now, we talked a little bit about this when we discussed Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. If you recall that from just a few weeks ago, it says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know that how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, 
I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or you could say this, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. See, the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that's available to you and I today to carry out every aspect of our lives. And this is important to remember because as we look at these beatitudes, they are conditional statements. They're conditional pronouncements all around the concept of how we can know happiness. We know them as the beatitudes. And they're not what you and I would expect. And we need the power of Christ to live them out. Just imagine walking up to your neighbor and saying, Hey neighbor, I have the keys to happiness. True happiness. Now, that statement would probably get your neighbor's attention. After all, we do live in a world that's seeking happiness. Searching for it everywhere. Isn't that what the last election was all about last Thursday? Every political party promised us something. Their platform had something that would make our lives easier. And ergo, if it was to make our lives easier, then we would have happiness, a better quality of life. Now, now just imagine the faces on your neighbor as you share verse 3 with them. You might not even get through the whole sentence before they interrupt you. I can imagine it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's when they would interrupt you. Oh, wait a second. What do you mean blessed in the poor in spirit? Happy are the poor in spirit? I would rather be rich in wallet. I think that's what would make me happy. That would happy my spirit to be rich in wallet. And we come by that honestly. Just look at what we read. I looked at the bestsellers list just to get an idea of what we read, what we digest as a society. Finding Me, an award-winning actress, describes the difficulty she encountered before claiming her sense of self and achieving professional success. Untamed, the activist and public speaker describes her journey of listening to her inner voice. Endured, How to Work Hard, Outlast, and Keep Hammering. Must be a man's book. Endure reveals how a self-professed average guy with discipline, sacrifice, resilience, a hard work ethic, and a belief in his own capabilities, not only can he accomplish his dreams, but he continues to surpass them. There is no secret to his success except relentless determination, loyal dedication, and his to his and loyal dedication to his own self-worth. Not sure why you buy the book after that. That's the bottom line. But what are Christians reading? Rule your day. Seven steps to achieving success. You You can't dictate what comes your way, and you won't find this in our library, by the way. You can't dictate what comes your way but you can control how unexpected setbacks affect you. In his latest work, best-selling author, and I'll let you guess, shares how to identify your faulty thinking, recast your vision, rise above circumstances, guard against negativity, and transcend distractions to focus on what matters most, 
Don't settle for surviving when you could be thriving. Dream big. Find and reach your biggest dreams. The author is on a mission to help you recapture the version of your life you dreamed about before fears started calling the shots. He wants you to dream big. That one's not in our library either. Um, you, happier. The seven neuroscience secrets of feeling good based on your brain type reveals the seven neuroscience secrets to becoming more becoming more than 30% happier in just 30 days or your money back. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. Regardless of your age, upbringing, genetics, or current situation. Hmm. Nothing about being poor in spirit to achieve happiness. Nothing about humility. That begs the question, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let's begin with what it's not. Now, much of the problem revolves around confusion about, the, about this meaning stems from uh, a perceived lack of clarity by Dr. Luke in Luke in his recording of this beatitude. So in Luke 6.20, the beatitude reads this way, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, this cannot mean that only the poor are blessed or that the lack of material things and poverty means an automatic pass to the kingdom. That, it can't mean that. If that was true, Israel at the time of Christ had it made. They were in great shape because not only were most of the Israelites poor, a great number lived a, just a life of subsistence. Yet it was to these people that John the Baptist was sent to preach repentance. Why did Jesus come to preach repentance? Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaimed the gospel of God, and, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is for both rich and poor. Interpreting poor in spirit to mean materially poor would also contradict other passages in the Bible. It also begs the question that if poverty is such a blessing, if poverty is the pathway to the kingdom, why does Scripture alleviate and take the time to tell us to alleviate that blessing from these people for those that are suffering? Wouldn't that be wrong? If that... if, if poverty was the way to the kingdom, then why are we told to alleviate that poverty? Why would King Agar say in Proverbs 30, 7 and 9 this, Oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. And second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And if I'm poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. Or how about from Psalm 40, chapter, uh, Psalm 40, verse 17? As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. You help me and, you're, and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. 
Why is the psalmist asking for deliverance from his poor lifestyle if poverty would bring him into the kingdom of God? The New Testament confirms this line of thinking. Acts 20, 35. All things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Or 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See, there are warnings in the New Testament about not trusting your riches. There are warnings in the Old Testament, as we read, of not trusting your riches. But nowhere does it condemn people for simply being rich. Nor are the rich ever regarded as less than. Think of some of the people we meet in the New Testament. Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was part of the ruling class. He was wealthy. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He makes his way and asks, Teacher, how can I be saved? What about the Roman centurion? He comes to Christ in Luke chapter 7. Jesus heals his servant. Or what about Joseph of Arimathea, who assumed the responsibility for the burial of Christ after his death? He gave him his tomb that was set aside for himself. Now, he got it back, but he did give it to him. Lastly, Philemon. Remember Philemon? To whom Paul wrote in the letter of Philemon? That was all for him to accept back Onesimus into his service. The instructions to the wealthy are simple. 1 Timothy six seventeen and 18. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. So the interpretation in this manner is consistent. John MacArthur reminds us that the hermeneutical principle, if there are two or more passages similar but not exactly alike, the clearer explains the others. The more explicit clarifies the less explicit. So then what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I like what one commentator said, Poor in spirit is the opposite of rich in pride. It's a recognition that you and I, before God, are spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually poor. That was the point of the Old Testament. That was the Old Testament laws. See, the covenant on Mount Sinai was not given to the nation so that they would keep it and fulfill it. Rather, it was given to them so they could see where they fell short, and it pointed to a Savior. From the start of Israel's history, the Bible demonstrates that God's standard of righteousness could not be kept by sinful men. While, while Moses was on Mount Sinai, and while he was receiving 
the law and the Ten Commandments, down in the valley, what was happening? Aaron was being coerced into what? Creating the golden calf so the people had something to worship. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 32. So the, the same people who had witnessed God's mighty hand against Pharaoh, the same people that were called out of, out of Egypt, saw the parting of the Red Sea, saw the water cover over Pharaoh's armies, who saw manna come from heaven and quail come, the same people that as Moses was gone for what, about a month? Receiving those Ten Commandments, they were down below saying, Aaron, you know what? We need something to worship. We don't know what happened to Moses. Create for us a golden calf. But what we do see in the Old Testament is this. When people repented, when they were contrite, when they expressed remorse, God granted forgiveness and grace. He set His said on them. His loving kindness. A theme throughout the Old Testament. See, when one recognized their need, submitted to God, humbly confessed their sins, availed themselves of God's provision through the sacrificial system by faith, they received forgiveness. They recognized they were bankrupt spiritually and they went to God for forgiveness and they found it. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. We all are righteous, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted, like a polluted garment, filthy rags for those with an older translation. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Paul picks up this theme when he speaks to the Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, in the letter he penned to them. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Until you and I come before God, until we recognize that we can do nothing we remain in our sin. And there's nothing that you and I can do to deal with that. David understood this. Psalm 51, verses 33 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So until we come to the conclusion that we've sinned, that we are poor in spirit, that we begin to acknowledge that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we need a Savior, we will remain in our pride. You will remain in your sin. The good news is that Jesus Christ provided a way. Done away with the old sacrifices and He provided a way. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
in our sin, Christ died for us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's look back at Matthew again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The New Living sums it up nicely. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So to be poor in spirit, Luke has a great illustration of this. It's actually one of the parables. You can turn there if you desire with me. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke sets this up really nicely for us. He, sets the, he doesn't tell us who the audience is in the parable, at least not outright, but we can figure it out. We figure out by the fact that as he talks, he begins to introduce the story, he says, this is for those who trusted in themselves. This parable is for those who trust in their own righteousness. That gives away the identity pretty quickly to the listener. See, the Pharisees, you might call them the religious lawyers of the day, followed the traditions of their father. And these fathers were famous for watering down the law. And the reason they watered down the law and put extra laws around them is because it gave them reason and excuses to not have to keep this law because, well, this really means this. And so they begin to put a law around the law, and that allowed them to view themselves and to keep it a little bit easier, but view themselves as being more righteous than others, that they've managed to keep the law. The tradition of the fathers we know today is the Talmud, and it took away from the intention of the law. Rather than seeing their need for God, they began to trust in themselves. They began to trust in their ability to stand righteous before God, to keep the law. And that's not how it was intended. That was not how the law was to be interpreted. But that's what they did to the law. In the parable, Jesus compares two men praying. They come to the temple at the same time, and the first a Pharisee standing in the temple began to pray. And look at the trust he had in himself. Look at the I statements. There's no repentance. There's no statement of faith. Look again what he says. 
I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I'm not a cheater, a sinner, an adulterer. I'm certainly not that like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. See, the danger in pre- there's always a danger in preaching. There's always a danger in teaching in the church. And it's this. It opens us up to teaching for conformity. So when you stand behind a pulpit or you stand in front of a class, whether you're teaching adults or youth or, or children, the danger is to preach towards conformity. Here's a checklist. Y'all can be good little boys and girls. You can be good Christians if you can keep this checklist. Because I want you to conform to what Scripture says. Our aim is not towards conformity. If it is, we've missed the point of Scripture. So, it's true. We don't want you to go cheat on your taxes or cheat the store. And it's true we want you to be faithful to your wife or your husband. And it's true we don't want you to go around sinning. But we miss the point if we cheat just towards conformity. Whether you're a pastor, leading a devotion, leading Sunday school or a youth group, we want to teach towards transformation. And that's different. We want to teach that the power of Christ will work in the individual to transform them, to make them more like Christ. And that their obedience doesn't come from pride, but it comes from an overwhelming love for the Savior that died and rose again for them. The Gospel not only provides forgiveness of sin, but it provides a quickening of our own spirit in our side ourselves that was dead. It's brought to life by the Spirit of God. And that Spirit makes its home inside of us and gives us the power to make the right choices in life. Gives us the power to walk in the Spirit Not to sin, but to choose righteousness. Why? Because God, the God of the universe, has set His loving kindness on us. Transformation occurs when we begin to walk in the Spirit, when we allow the Spirit to convict us. Romans 12 talks of it as a a renewing of our mind. And as our minds are renewed, we learn to lean on the Lord, we begin to understand more about Christ. And through prayer, we begin to ask God for the power to live out what we're learning, to to begin to really walk the words that are taught to us in Scripture. None of this can happen until we recognize that we are poor in spirit, that we're in need of God. Look at the second man in the parable. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here we witness a man who feels unworthy. He's standing far off. That gives the impression that he's sort of on the perimeter, back by one of the exit signs not right in the middle of everything that's happening. And his head is bowed. 
Beating the breast is an indication culturally of mourning. His prayer is a simple one. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Sweet, short, and to the point. Unlike the Pharisee who tried to get God's attention, Lord, look at all the stuff I do, Lord. As if he expected God to grant him his wish because of how good he was. No, no, the Pharisee understood, or the tax collector understood he was poor in spirit. The parable ends. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom of heaven is for those who recognize they're spiritually bankrupt. See, true happiness begins with a recognition of our own sin and responding to the good news of Jesus Christ in faith. As it says in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That only comes when we can stand, when we realize that we stand condemned before God, guilty of breaking His law. Just, just take a look at the Ten Commandments. Have you kept all of them? Because even breaking the smallest of the Ten Commandments leaves you guilty. It leaves you separated from God. That's the point of the law. That we understand we are guilty, we are separated from God. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin, so if you've broken one of the commandments, you've sinned, so the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'd say you and I, well, maybe I shouldn't speak for you, so I'll speak for me. I have earned those wages well. I have earned death. But God, rich in mercy, offers life to all who will repent. Turn away from the old life. Come to God. Know that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you need help, that you need a Savior. I'd ask that you just bow your heads for a second. As we think, we go to church year after year, day after day. Some of us grew up in church. And it's easy to be like the Pharisees. We learn the language. We learn what it means to say certain words and understand on a sense of in our minds of all that's going around us. So we make a mental ascent. But have you come to where you understand that you can do nothing to get to God, that you are spiritually bankrupt? If you've never made a profession of faith, if you've never understood there's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation then this morning is the time to repent, to understand that, to make that acknowledgement before God that you stand bankrupt before Him, that you need to come to Him on bended knee, bended heart, and say, Lord, I need You. To understand 
that you can call out on His name and He will save you. If you have not done that in your life at this point, I ask that you either speak to one of the elders or myself afterwards or to bend your heart before God now at this quiet moment and cry out for Him. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin. Recognize your need and your spiritual emptiness before Him. Father, we thank you this morning for the Beatitudes, for all that we see in there. We thank you for the opportunity to come to you in faith. Father, we recognize that we are bankrupt spiritually and that we have no way of paying the wages, death, Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, came and he died on a cross and rose again to make that payment of death, to bring us from death to life, that we might have a personal relationship with you, that we would not be standing afar off from you, but that as we recognize our need and ask for mercy, we come into a relationship with you and that you then take up residence in our life that you quicken our spirit, that you make us alive, and we can commune with the living God, with the creator of this universe. Father, if there's anyone here today, may you open their heart and their mind and their soul to the understanding of their need for you and your love and mercy that you've extended, that you have set your loving kindness on men and offer them the free gift of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.